Welcome. You're listening to Sunday Sermons from Catalyst Church San Diego, where we want to see our community, city, and world changed by the gospel. We're going to talk today about worship. Worship. You know, what do you think when you hear worship? You know, sometimes, you know, people think music. And worship involves so much more than music. A lot of times when people ask you about the worship at your church, they're typically not asking about your prayer. They're not asking about the biblical teaching or fellowship or anything else. They're saying, you know, is it contemporary worship? Is it like, is it? more conservative. What is it like? But worship is more than music. It involves everything that we do. Everything we do here involves the music and everything else. And it also involves your life, the things you do in your own life. Worship is our prayer life. Worship is our Bible reading time. Worship is how we apply God's word to our life. We, in everything we do, we live our lives as worshipers. And God is seeking genuine worshipers before him. What we'll learn today is that genuine worship comes from a heart of godly understanding, a heart of humility, and a life of sacrifice to him. The opposite of being authentic and genuine is being fake. I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of kids that didn't have a lot of money. It didn't, a pretty poor neighborhood. But even though they were poor, they wanted to wear the latest name brands. And you'd have some parents, even though they couldn't afford it, they were still, you know, they would go out of their way to buy their kids name brand things so that, you know, little Johnny wouldn't get made fun of in school. But, uh, if you couldn't afford it, there were places you could go in our neighborhood where you could go buy fake name brand clothing. You'd go into the store, there was a t-shirt, and on the t-shirt, they'd put the logo real big, boom, right on it, and make you think it's a name brand, right? So but they, if, the really, if it was really bad, they'd take a, you know, they'd, they'd change it up a little bit. Nike would be, they'd put a little line to become Mikey. Adidas, they changed the D to a B, it's Adidas. And if you were like, you were a kid, and you were, you know, for, for the kids here, there used to be these places called record stores. You'd walk into it, and it was amazing. If you wanted a song, you actually had to go to this store and buy, like, the cassette that is on. I grew up with cassettes. And I remember these folks that you'd want the latest songs, that there'd be these guys hanging out by the train station, and they'd have all these cassettes. You know, they were copies of the original. You'd buy the, you'd buy the cassette, and it had like a photocopy of the, of the front of the album in the front, and there was like a cassette inside. The cassette was a copy of the original. But the fake was never as good as the authentic. You bought those fake T-shirts, and they'd fade, and they would shrink up in all weird ways, and you'd have like this one sleeve that's weird up here, and you go home and play that cassette, and you're listening to the music, and then it cuts off on one side. But if you're poor, you try to get away with, you know, the fake stuff. Yep, pirating, yeah. (laughs) But while, while being fake might get you by in this world, it doesn't work with God. 
God knows the heart. And God is seeking genuine worshipers who will worship him from a place of authenticity, a place of humility before him. How can we now, if we're, we're thinking about this and trying to think about the fake versus the genuine, are there certain characteristics, are there things that we can look at in a life that will help us understand the characteristics of a genuine worshiper? And we'll look at that today as Jesus teaches in Mark 12. We'll be in Mark 12 starting in verse 35. If you have your pew Bible, it's on the bottom of page 900. The context of where we are today in Mark chapter 12, Jesus, if we remember the context, Jesus was confronted by a scribe. And the scribe comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question about the commandments. He says, which is the most important commandment? Jesus responds by reciting what's actually known in Judaism, Judaism today is known as the Shema. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then he says this, that this is the greatest commandment. He says, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And I think what proceeds after that will be what we're looking at today. I think the, the, the Holy Spirit inspired these verses right after this to give us a picture of that commandment, of what a genuine, the characteristics of a genuine worshiper. Let's take a look at that today, starting in verse 35. Mark 12, starting in verse 35, says this. It says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. And he gives them this warning about the scribes. He says, he also said this in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour a widow's houses and say long prayers just for show. They will receive harsher judgment. Verse 41, sitting across from the temple treasury, Jesus watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And then he's going to point out a particular person there. He says, Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on, as God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, God, we lay it all before you. 
Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would open hearts, open minds, oh, Lord, that our souls might be, might submit this day to you. God, help everything that's said to point to you. And may you get the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I think here as we're looking at this, Jesus is expanding on this commandment, this commandment that he had said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And when someone loves the Lord in that way, they are someone who lives a life of worship, who are, who are genuine worshipers before God. Well, we're starting here with worship. What does it mean? What is worship? Worship, to remember, is first a response. We talked a little bit about that last week when we talked about love. There's this command here. We have a command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that act, that command is not something that begins with us. It begins with him. He is the one that loved us first. He's the one that loved us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us while we were still in the rebellion, while we were still pushing him away. Christ loved us. Christ died for us. And in response, we love him. And that love is shown in worship. Worship is a response, an expression of love to God. It's a, the act of showing love, reverence, and adoration to him. We express gratitude. We express devotion to God in worship. And we worship him. That worship takes many forms. It, it includes songs. It includes hymns. It includes praying. It includes just getting, to, getting before God and before him and his word, learning more about him because I love him. And it includes living a life that honors him because I love him. You can hear the heart of a genuine worshiper. You hear it in all the scriptures, but I think particularly of the Psalms. And I brought this out in Psalm 95, verses 6 through 7. You listen to the heart of a genuine worshiper. He says, come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the sheep under his, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Worship, the worshiper, you, when you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, it is an act of worship before him. And if you are called to be one of God's people, if you are a sheep, one of the sheep under his care, you're called to be a genuine worshiper of God. What does this look like? What are the characteristics of a genuine worshiper? I think we're going to see that today in this text. We'll see it in three different ways. The first one is this. Is that a genuine worshiper desires godly understanding. Godly understanding. Jesus asked this question. He asked them about the Messiah. The Old Testament scriptures, the, the, all throughout, by the way, the Old Testament scriptures for Jesus is just the scriptures. That's what he preached from. 
And in the Old Testament, all throughout the writings, all throughout the prophets, all throughout the the Torah and the law, all throughout the scriptures, there was this thread that wove through it, that there would be this Messiah that was going to come. The Messiah means the anointed one. And it spoke about about a Messiah who would be the savior of Israel, who would come to redeem his people and to usher in God's kingdom. If you look in all of history, by far, there's only one person that ever fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. That was Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the righteous one. The God's word is true and it points us to Jesus. Among the messianic prophecies, if you looked in the right in the in the Psalms, one of the one of the prophecies that the rabbis agreed on is Psalm 110. They said Psalm 110 speaks about the Messiah. So David in this psalm, he he speaks about the Messiah. And Jesus, what he does here, points out something very curious about this psalm. He quotes Psalm 110 verse 1 in Mark 12. It says that Jesus, he's teaching there. He's asking how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David in verse 36, he, here he is. This is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then he asked them a question. Well, if David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Well, Jesus, what is he doing? He's reminding them something about the Messiah, that the Messiah, that the prophet said that the Messiah would come through the genealogy of King David. That the Messiah, when the Messiah comes to Israel, he would be the great, 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 I don't know how many greats, you throw them in there, grandson of David. And in some way that David was above in the pecking order. He was, he was before him, right? And so we are taught, it's even in the commandments, Honor, honor your father and your mother. That, that there is this, we honor the ones that came before us. Yet, the curious thing here in Psalm 110, verse 1, now is this, now, this is where we get into translation. Now, realize that, that I don't, whatever your favorite Bible is, whatever, whether it's the King James, whether you like the ESV, whether you like the NASB, whether the, I preach out of the CSB, or they like the New Living, whatever they are, realize that they are all translations. The Bible, in case you don't know, was not written in English. The Old Testament's written mostly in Hebrew, some Aramaic, and the New Testament's written in Greek. And what happens is when you translate foreign words into English, sometimes what you do is you group words together. Because English is understood from context. We understand the English word by the context that's around it. So a famous example of this, if you know the New Testament, the Greek, there, there's a Greek word for love. And in, and in Greek, there are many, there's these different forms of love, and they have different words for them in Greek. So there'll be a Greek word that talks about brotherly love, another one, romantic love, etc. But when we translate them into English, we just translate them as love. And you have to understand that it's brotherly love from the context. Well, the same is true for words for God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are, there are a number of words for God. You have Yahweh. You have Adonai. 
You have Elohim. And you have these different words for God in the Old Testament. When you translate them into English, depending on your translation, you get God or Lord. So when you read this in English, Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord declared to my Lord. But looking at this in Hebrew, if you look at this Psalm 110 in Hebrew, what you have is Yahweh declared to Adonai. God declared to God. And furthermore, you look at this, and they, they would understand this from the, looking at this of the Hebrew, and then, and then furthermore, David says, the Lord declared to my God, my Lord. God declared to my God. And Jesus, he, what, he, what is he doing here? He's appealing to the intellect. He's appealing to the mind. He's saying, think deeply about this. Understand this. Dave, what is David saying about the Messiah? David is saying that the Messiah is God, that he is the God of Israel. Think deeply about this. See, what's interesting is when you become a Christian, you don't leave your intellect behind. Worship involves the mind. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Worship certainly is more than intellect. If it's just intellect, it's a stale academic exercise, and you are just, you're not, there's no life change, but it is definitely not less than intellect. God calls us, he, God gives us the ability to reason. God gives us the ability to understand and he calls us to think, have deep thoughts about him and to love him with all our mind. Paul, he described this. He, he talked about the, the, the uh, meditating on God, knowing about God, being a, the ability to the, transform your mind. He says in Romans 12, 2, says, do not be conformed to this age, that there is a way of thinking in this age, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of what? Of your mind. That there is, God gives you the ability to think, to reason, to understand, and through, through to discover him, to know more about him. And he calls you to, to worship him with your mind, to love him with your mind, to meditate on him and deep thinkly about, and think deeply about God. Remember when I became a Christian, there was this sense that I had, it was just where I was, but it was a sense that I had as a, this brand new Christian that I just had to just sort of just take this leap of faith into Jesus. Just sort of jump in and just say, you know, no matter what anybody else says, no matter what all, no matter wherever the evidence goes, I'm just going to believe in Jesus. I think that's okay to start in, you know, that's where I was and God takes you where you are. But there was something that really troubled me. There was this, um, I remembered a college professor. I had gone to, really gone to secular schools my whole life, public school and everything. And, but there was this one particular college professor was very, actually, I don't even remember much else about this class, but it's just this one thing. Let's guess that's college. He was like, he was zealous about Darwin. 
He was zealous about Darwinian evolution, but he loved it. And he was just, he was preaching it, and it was just, it, it, uh, yeah, preaching it, yeah. He was <laughs> teaching it, and I would say preaching. Uh, he, was, he was going on and on, and he loved this. And then he gets to the Bible, and he talks about creation. He says, you know, the Bible has the creation myth, and it's just like all these other creation myths. And I got, I walked away from that, and, it, and the major write a paper on his and, I walked away from that. There was this impression that I had from that class, from that professor, and probably other classes too, I'm sure. There was this impression that I had that all the, that all the smart people thought that way. All the smart people were kind of these, that they, they didn't believe the Bible. Smart people were kind of doing the atheist thing or whatever it was. And it was just, it was the dumb people that, got, that sort of went with this. But that really bothered me. So I said, you know what? I'm going to challenge that thought. I'm going to challenge my thinking. Let's look into that. I'm going to see if there are people who make arguments about this. And I remember actually being shocked. I was shocked that there were scientists. I was shocked that there were philosophers. I was shocked that there were really like intelligent people making incredible arguments that said that the Bible is true. And I remember this moment. It just being just saying, wow, there are smart people who defend the Bible. See, what I had done was I had bought a lie from the world. The enemy loves to feed us lies. And I had bought this lie that said, if you want to be a Christian, you need to abandon your intellect. And that's actually not true, and it's quite the opposite. The, The Lord calls us to love him with all our mind to think deep thoughts, to understand him more, and to to give him what we have and to say, God, I want to know you more. A genuine worshiper desires godly understanding. Second Second characteristic of a genuine worshiper, a genuine worshiper evaluates their motives. Evaluates their motives. Jesus continues teaching. He warns the people about scribes. Now, if you remember what I said about scribes, scribes are people who were, they're employed for their ability to read and write. Uh, There's some overlap between the scribes and the Pharisees. Some of the scribes are Pharisees. Some of the scribes are actually other groups as well. But these scribes are experts in the law. They're copying the biblical manuscripts. Many of them are actually teachers and the scribes were people who had this sort of elevated status. They, would, they were the educated people. They had legal experts. They, were, they had religious influence. They were publicly visible. And look at how Jesus describes them. He describes them as people who go around in long robes in verse 38. Goes around in long robes, want greetings in the marketplaces, want the best seats. I mean, these are people that they expect a response from their position. They go around these religious outfits, religious attire, expect elaborate greetings from people, expect to be honored. But what Jesus points points out about them is that the fruits of their heart speak louder than their religious attire. He says, he describes them as devouring widows' houses and giving long prayers just for show. 
What is, he, what is Jesus getting at? Jesus is describing what he is saying. is describing their motivations. At the bottom of all this, at the, underneath the religious attire, underneath all the show, what is, what is there? What's driving this? Say for the scribes, they, they're really, are they, drive, are they being driven to honor God? Or they, it looks like their motivations are driven by their position. By how other people treat them. And their, but their false religion on the inside comes out by the way they treat others. They devour widows' houses. They, they fail to love their neighbor as themselves. And see, to be someone who loves the Lord your God, I talked about loving the Lord your God with all your mind. To be someone who loves the Lord your God with all your soul is to be someone who evaluates, who sits down and thinks and looks at my soul and evaluates the motives because the soul is tricky. And you think of what, who a worshiper is. A worship, a wor- the picture of worship is to bow down before God, to, to lift him up in praise. And we're called to be people who have regular times of evaluation, just says, looks at my soul, and just says, is, is that where I am? Am I in my life bowing down before him? He said this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul tells them, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? And what does it actually look like? How does it look like to to be able to evaluate, to be able to look at yourself and just say, am I someone who is in the faith? We do need ways to evaluate that. You know, we've got benchmarks for all kinds of things. I, I wear a smartwatch. Over here, my smartwatch is constantly yelling at me to get healthy. I'm, I'm working on it. I keep, I'm trying. Now, they make these gadgets that are like smart, trying to be smarter than you. And sometimes they're winning. But there's all kind of, it gives you all kind of benchmarks to say, okay, you want to be healthy? Here, here is what that looks like. It's my smartwatch, it'll measure my daily steps. And I'll be walking around. It's, it's, it's so nice. It's trying to encourage me. It says, you're doing good today. Keep it up. It has benchmarks for my steps. It has benchmarks for my heartbeat. It measures my heartbeat. So I'm going around. If I've got a little going up a few hills, getting some cardio in, it'll say, man, you are doing great today. It's so encouraging. It gives benchmarks for my heartbeat. Hey, you're, you're doing great with your cardio. It measures I wear it to sleep. It, actually, this thing knows a lot about me. Come to think about it. It watches the sleep patterns. It'll tell me if I'm sleeping, getting enough sleep. Finally, if there's an app, and it'll tell me, it'll look at my stress levels. It'll, look, it'll have benchmarks for stress. And you say, how are you doing? And in the same way, I think you can have benchmarks and evaluate your motives behind those things that you're doing. I'll give you an activity, something you could take home, something you could work on. You get a sheet of paper. Just take a piece of paper. 
what you're going to do in this piece of paper, you create two columns, fold it in half, whatever you do. You got two columns. On the left side, in the first column, you're going to write down all your religious activities. Maybe it's the religious activities you're doing. Maybe it's the religious activities you inspire to do. So you just list them down. So I go to church once a week. I attend small group once a week. I pray in the morning. I pray when I eat. I pray, or, or maybe I pray before I go to bed, or I read my Bible in the morning, or, or at nighttime, whatever it is. You just list down all of these spiritual activities you do on this left side. Then on the right column, write down why. Why do you attend church once a week? Why? Why are you, read, why are you on doing this Bible reading plan? Why do you pray in the morning? You just take time to sit, meditate, evaluate. Where is my heart? What are my motivations? See, you get, am, I, am I doing what I'm doing, this religious activity? Is there other alternative, alternative motives? Am I just, you know... Or am I doing these things because I love God and I want to know him more? I want to love the Lord with all of my soul. And I want the things in my life to reflect that. I want a soul that cries out with everything that I do that just says, I love you, Lord. A genuine worshiper desires godly understanding. A genuine worshiper evaluates their motives in third and last. A genuine worshiper lives a life of sacrifice. You get to these last verses in Mark 12, and it's describing a widow's gift of the temple. And one thing that's really interesting is just this contrast that happens. Because then the first thing what we've just had here is this, we have this picture of the scribe and the, the, the scribes, is the, they, are, they have this inauthentic uh, false religion and they describe as people who devour widows' houses. And what's that immediately contrasted with? A widow at the temple. It's an amazing contrast. And it says, verse 41, it describes that they're sitting across from the temple treasury and they're watching a crowd drop money in the treasury. There's a lot of rich people there dropping in large sums. The temple in, Jeru the temple in Jerusalem had something called the temple treasury. And it was one of the places at the temple where men and women could gather together, where they could come at one place to give their offerings and donations. Even thousands of years ago, they had offering boxes. And so they had uh, these, they were the... At the temple treasury where there were these trumpet-looking things, they were wide on the top and it kind of narrowed down. And you would go in and you'd put, your, you'd put your donations in there. It was narrow so you couldn't like stick your hand in there and take some out. And Jesus, what he does is he describes a lot of wealthy people dropping in large sums of money. You know, perhaps what they're doing is kind of making a, a show of it or something. And he describes a lot of them putting putting lots of money in there. But then he describes this poor widow. And it says a poor widow that she dropped two tiny coins that were worthless. The Jews had a, had a coin. It was made of copper. It was called a lepta. Now, a lepta is, is pretty worthless. A lepta 
is about one sixty-fourth the value of a denarius. And you're saying, well, what in the world is that? A denarius is basically what you get paid for a full day's wage. So I finished my day of work, and I'm getting a denarius. A lepta was about one sixty-fourth of that. It would be equivalent to about a fraction of a penny. But how the Lord describes her gift, this is so interesting. The widows, remember, widows at this time, they are generally poor. They, and he says, the Lord looks at this, this, he describes her offering in verse 43. says, summoning his disciples, he said to them, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her Poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You could kind of look at it this way. You could say, what she just gave into the temple treasury looks weak to the world's standards. But God doesn't measure by the world's standards. God doesn't need the thousand dollars. God doesn't need the million dollars. But you know what God enjoys? People who love the Lord with all their strength. She's giving everything she has. She's loving the Lord with all her strength. And what the world says is weak, is strong in the eyes of God. Many times, strength looks like weakness. I love this interaction in this interaction in Second Corinthians twelve verses nine to ten. You have an interaction here. It's this interaction between the Lord and Paul. The Lord says this in Second Corinthians twelve nine. He says, "My grace." Is sufficient for you. You think that? My grace is, you, you have everything you need. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul's response, he goes, Therefore I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My grace is sufficient for you. See, boasting about his weakness is starting to move from self-sufficiency from a place that says, I can do this, I got this all on my own, to a place of God's sufficiency, God's sufficiency that says, God, I need you. I need you here. God, I can't do this. And I think, I believe as you get closer to God, the more you realize how insufficient you are and how much you need him. Embracing your weakness, when you take pleasure in your, re- your weakness, you realize that God's grace is sufficient for you. 
Living a life of sacrifice, what does that look like? That looks like laying everything at the altar. God, because your grace is sufficient for me. The world will tell you to stand up for yourself. It'll tell you, to, it'll tell you that you're right, that you should fight, that you, should, you shouldn't back down. Don't back down to your coworkers. Don't back down to your spouse. God says, let me stand up for you because my grace is sufficient for you. The world says to hold on to what's yours, to hold on to everything with a tight fist. God says, open your hand, let it go, because my grace is sufficient for you. The world says to live your best life now. The world says you only live one life. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. God says, give your life to me. Let me have it. Because my grace is sufficient for you. We love a God who loved us with everything he had. Jesus said, John 15, 13, he says, No one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, he loved with everything he had. Sacrificed himself on the cross for you. It reminds me of a song that goes, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The gospel is powerful. The cross is powerful. To, and to, to live in God, to seek him, to, to seek him out, to, to love him with all your strength, to boast about my weakness is strength in him. Because I realize that at the end of the day that I am insufficient, I don't have anything, but I, what I do have is everything in Jesus Christ because his grace is sufficient for me and for you. My prayer for our church that we would be a people who grasp on to the sufficiency of Christ. That we have everything we need in him. We'd walk out here loving him with all our mind, all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, because his grace is sufficient for us, and we worship him. <laughs> Let's live out our calling to be genuine worshipers of God and Jesus. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons from Catalyst Church San Diego. If you're in the San Diego area, we would love for you to visit us. Our church is at 6038 Cumberland Street in San Diego, California. We meet every Sunday for our worship service at 1030 a.m. You can reach us anytime by visiting our website at CatalystChurchSD.org or emailing us at info at CatalystChurchSD.org. 